This is the final part of the Love, Rinse, Repeat special 50th episode, The Seven Last Words from the Cross. If this is the first one you're listening to because it was at the top of your podcast feed, I suggest scrolling down to the bottom until you hit part one with Grace, Jason, Kim, and then listening through all seven last words. Here at the end, I am joined by W. Travis McMacken to talk about Jesus' words, Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. Please welcome Travis to Love, Rinse, Repeat, and welcome back everyone who has been listening to all these parts of this very special episode. I'm thankful for you all. Well, W. Travis McMacken, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat. It's great to be here. Uh, it's great to have you here. So the, what we're discussing is Luke 23, 46. Then Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So what do you hear in these words, Travis? Well, um, in reflecting on them, the, the key term that stuck in my mind is spirit. Um, and of course, this is a really, really important term all throughout uh, the Christian Bible and um, really has been influential at different periods throughout church history as well in different kind of spiritualist movements or, or movements that um, want to claim a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So I kind of um, focused there. And um, the first place my mind went as I began to reflect on the importance of spirit, both in Jesus's story and the larger biblical story, was the connection back to Genesis 1. Because right at the beginning of the biblical story, you've got um, the earth formless and void, some of my favorite Hebrew, tohu hubohu, and um, there's the, the breath of God, the spirit of God, the ruach of God, kind of stirring things up. And, uh, and troubling the waters there. And um, very quickly, we move from that into the story of creation in Genesis 2 when the Spirit comes back, or at least God's breath comes back, as uh, God breathes life into human beings uh, after having formed Adam from the dust of the earth. And, and if you look at the um, Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew text, uh, they both use paneo, roots, uh, for that that re- reference to breath in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2. It's kind of tying them together. And this idea of God's breath, God's spirit, uh, as it becomes part of what it means to be human, um, got me thinking about uh, God's mission in the world and what it means to live a life as a human being uh, tied up with God's mission in the world. And, of course, um, in Genesis 1, we have that real interesting passage that people have reflected on for ages and ages about what's the image of God, right? What does it mean to be created in God's image? And maybe it means something like having the same mission in the world that God has in the world and being characterized by this breath or spirit of God. But of course, you know, Genesis 3, things very quickly go wrong uh, with the image of God and with this mission of God in the world. Uh, And we get this long, drawn-out story of God's repeated attempts at interventions and and, uh, uh, re-breathings of the Spirit into the world until we end up in uh, the New Testament, uh, 
and a passage like Colossians 1.15, where we hear about Jesus being the image of God and all of that being corrected um, in Jesus Christ. So that um, Jesus is once again showing us exactly what it means to live out God's mission in the world, to be faithful to this breath of God or the spirit of God that's constantly stirring things up. So that was, you know, one connection that um, this verse uh, created in my mind. Jesus is commending into God's hands, God the Father's hands, this whole way of life that he has embodied uh, as part of God's broader story in interacting with humanity and creation. Wow, that's really helpful. So then would you say that, so that, that, that kind of spirit is committed to God and in some way then the resurrection is God saying, yeah, that is, that is, this is the life well, like, you know, this is the life live. This is what I say yes to, uh, where, mm-hmm. where the world has said no, I say yes now to, to I, you know, that, that life, we can look at that and say, yeah, that was the vindicated life right. in the image of God. Yep. And that, I mean, looking a little closer to home now in Luke, um, would you mention it? Because in some of the stories, Jesus has uh, that phrase, it is finished, that comes after uh, at the very end of the crucifixion story. But in Luke, he ends with this. Into your hands, I commend my spirit are Jesus's last words, even though they're not God's last word. Um, but inside the story of Luke, if we trace this idea of the spirit that God, that Jesus is now, in a sense, giving back to or affirming um, to uh, his father, if we trace that back, we get the story of Jesus's baptism in Luke 3. Uh, and you develop this, you look at that and you see that right at the beginning of his uh, way and being and work as the Messiah, Jesus interacts with the spirit of God. The spirit term comes up, pneuma in the Greek. And then right at the end, the spirit is back and Jesus is handing it on saying, here, I've done my bit. Uh, I started, I carried it out, and here it is. I'm offering it. Judge it as you will. And, of course, the Father offers his judgment. Um, But Jesus has, in this sense, since the beginning of his ministry, always commended his spirit into his Father's hands. And I think it's really interesting um, because right after Jesus' baptism, you have the Holy Spirit descending like a dove there in Luke chapter 3, and this is my beloved Son, and so on. And right then at the beginning of the next chapter, chapter four, we hear about the Holy Spirit uh, driving Jesus into the wilderness to be tested there. And uh, it's only after Jesus passes the test, it's, it's after Jesus stays true to that spirit that descends on him as a dove at baptism and forces him into this test. Jesus stays true to that in that sense, uh, commending himself to God, commending his spirit to God, that you get... Uh, in verse 14 in chapter 4, that Jesus is now filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 18, Jesus gets up in the synagogue and starts preaching about what his mission is going to be. And that is liberation to the oppressed and freedom to the prisoners and hope to the downhearted and so on. So you've got this whole process whereby the spirit that troubled the waters there at the beginning of Genesis and is breathed into human life in Genesis 2, only to be betrayed, is now breathed once again on Jesus. But unlike the previous story, Jesus is staying true to it, and so is able to live that life in the power of the Holy Spirit in a way that is pleasing to God. And so here at the end of that life, Jesus is giving that spirit back, 
saying, you know, I've kept my end of the bargain. Uh, Bart would say steadfastness on that side, right? Because he has the steadfastness on both sides language. But Jesus is saying, I've done my part. Here you go, Father. I'm giving it back. I've done everything I can with it. And um, when we think about how it's this spirit of God that troubles and stirs things up, both back at the beginning of Genesis and all through the story, and especially in Jesus's life, it, it made me think of um, a quote that Terry Eagleton has. And I, I, all my books are locked in my office on campus and I can't get at them. So I'm just kind of doing a close paraphrase from memory. But Terry Eagleton looks at Jesus's crucifixion coming after Jesus's life and says, basically, what other outcome would you expect? This is exactly what happens to somebody who rejects the values of empire, the values of oppression, the values of exploitation, who lives, in effect, according to a different spirit. And it's precisely Jesus's faithfulness to that spirit of God that leads him to the cross in obedience. And so it's very fitting then, on that cross, Jesus is saying, hey, you know, this is your spirit. It brought me here. Okay. Um, and that's, that's a fitting end piece to a beginning where God is speaking and saying, here's the spirit and commending Jesus. And at the end, Jesus is saying, here's the spirit back to God and commending that spirit back to God. That's great. I really love it. I have two kind of thoughts that spring from it. One, I guess, is the way that then this pattern will be in some way repeated, uh, when we come to acts. You know, as Luke picks up the next, it's like, okay, so the Spirit's going back to the Father, being sent by Jesus. Then it's going to get sent down to the apostles uh, at, at Pentecost and to, to all who are there. And, and from that, then it's going to um, fill them so that they can carry carry on Jesus' ministry uh, and often leading to a very similar uh, outcome. I think of Stephen or, yep. and others and, and their own persecution. That And, again, it is, it's because they are following that spirit and not, you know, a spirit of fear or a spirit of violence or power. Mm-hmm. And that spirit continues to stir things up and uh, make trouble, not only for those who are um, far away, as some of the language in Acts goes. I'm thinking about Acts 2 and Peter's sermon. Not only for those who are far away, but also for those who are near. Mm. Uh, For those who are following Jesus themselves, the spirit stirs things up. And so you see how the gospel message under the power and instigation of the spirit continues to break down boundaries and jump walls and fences uh, that have been set up to try to contain it and says, no, this thing is bigger and more important than all of these other things. And then um, those who are faithful to the Spirit follow the Spirit wherever it goes, whether that means you end up on a cross like Jesus or stoned multiple times like Paul or what have you. So, yeah, mm-hmm. that, that Spirit of God, that breath of God that's constantly stirring things up, mm-hmm. um, continue, the story continues. Yeah. Uh, there's a sequel, um, <laughs> not only a prequel to the Jesus story there in Genesis uh, and following, but also a sequel there in the book of Acts. Mm. And it's, and it's very much the, you know, the, the, the big turning point kind of, or one of the turning points in Acts is, you know, the inclusion of the Gentiles. And again, that's the spirit showing up. Peter go, well, I guess I can't ignore that. Um, and what I have to do now is get all my friends together. And we've got to relook at our received texts in light of what we're seeing the spirit doing and let that disturb it and let that lead, lead to a, you know, mm-hmm. novel reading. Um, the other thought I had from, from what you were talking about with this uh, is the way, you know, it may help frame what is the role of the spirit. Because I think if, if, if regular 
churchgoers, Christians, ministers have any, you know, uh, have a stumbling block in common. It's often, what is the Spirit? What does the Spirit do? What is the Spirit's role? Um, like we have this Trinity. We know they're all a part of it. Um, but, you know, uh, you know, you often get the, the, you know, the classically characterized two men and a dove kind of thing where, you, you know, you don't really know what to do here. And I think this framing kind of really helps us that, you know, Jesus is, I think Amos Young uses this, you know, the spirit inaugurated Messiah, you know, that, that, that is the spirit who comes, you know, bookends and frames and compels and gives power to all that Jesus does and then thus from Jesus the church. So I guess any thoughts you have there on, like, you know, how this kind of helps us to frame or give language to what we're trying to say about the role of the spirit in, in, in our life and the life of the church? Well, yeah, I mean, it would be an analogous role. And I think that the spirit Christologies that we get from so many different quarters in the second half of the 20th century are um, really enlightening in terms of the many avenues for reflection that they open up that weren't there in the same way. Um, but of course, uh, we, we have some other resources in the tradition. So when I was thinking through this also, uh, I remember uh, how important it was for Calvin that we understand the righteousness that Christians participate in in Christ as the result of Christ's obedience. It's not some kind of righteousness that Jesus has because Jesus is the son of God, some essential righteousness, but a righteousness that Jesus earns precisely by following the promptings of the spirit and living in this way that's true uh, to the spirit of God. So that in, in the Christian's life, the task is the same. Jesus is that, in that sense um, a model uh, both a savior and a model, a messiah and a model um, for how the Christian life uh, can go as well. And that's right down to um, the experience on the cross as well. Uh, Calvin famously uh, in his commentary on the Apostles' Creed and the Descended in the Hell passage uh, highlights this not as some movement through metaphysical space and time, but as what the experience on the cross meant, this kind of separation from God uh, as Jesus bore the existential uh, and psychological burden of sin, so that um, as Christians continue to bear the existential and psychological burdens that come with faithfulness to this spirit that stirs up trouble, um, they know that they have that model and Messiah there in Christ who has been there and done that, and perhaps not bought the T-shirt, uh, but is prepared to be with them uh, in a similar kind of situation. Um, and then, I mean, in that regard, I think another connection, interesting connection to uh, the Hebrew scriptures arises in Psalm 31. Because uh, Jesus's uh, line here is not new. It's a quotation from Psalm 31, verse 5, I believe it is. Uh, and again, they're working with that uh, ruach term that we get in the beginning of Genesis in Hebrews. Uh, but this whole psalm is a psalm uh, asking God for deliverance and proclaiming uh, the, the authors, and it's, it's supposed to be a psalm of David, um, the authors trust in God despite all the evidence to the contrary and rejecting, I mean, this is verse five, very next verse, rejecting worthless idols. Right. That's the language. These worthless idols that other people follow after. Um, and if we're thinking about Jesus living a life diametrically opposed to the values of empire, I mean, there's your worthless idols. Right. All of the values of empire that it's so easy to chase after and um, 
um, be faithful to instead of being faithful to the spirit. Uh, and this, there's a trust in God then who's going to dumbfound the wicked. And there's a, a confession of faith in God's steadfast love built on the root chesed, which is covenantal faithfulness uh, in the Hebrew scriptures, where um, despite all evidence to the contrary, um, both in the psalmist's life and in Christ in that moment on the cross, and so often in our own lives, despite all the evidence to the contrary, you are nevertheless going to wait on the Lord. And that's how verse 24 ends in that psalm with an admonition to wait on the Lord. And so uh, as this Luke is telling the story of Jesus's crucifixion, all of that is working in the background, not only of Luke's imagination, but of the imagination of his readers who are familiar with the Hebrew scriptures. And basically it's foreshadowing because we just said, like this is Jesus's last word in Luke, but it's not God's last word, right? You wait on the Lord because ultimately the Lord is going to have the final say. And so as uh, Christians continue to follow uh, the lead of this spirit who stirs things up, ultimately throughout that experience, it has to be a rejection of worthless idols, uh, rejection of the values of empire and oppression and exploitation and hanging on to that steadfast love of God and waiting on the Lord. Wow. Thank you. That's excellent. As we, as we come into land, uh, one of the questions I've kind of, you know, going to run through this, this conversation is, you know, part of the reason we're doing this is because of, you know, COVID-19 and, and being unable to, uh, you know, no one's going to be going in flesh to a service where they're hearing the last words. Uh, so I guess in this particular time uh, when, you know, there's almost like a conflict between two ways of seeing how you trust God and how you, how you be obedient to the call. Uh, there are those who see that as you have to continue to go to church in spite of what the uh, worldly authorities are telling you because, you know, God's word has to, has to, has to triumph through. And those who know the, the obedient thing uh, is to listen to the, the voice outside of the church and, and, and coming through the church too. Uh, I guess, yeah, w what thoughts you have, uh, particularly maybe around the, the helpfulness of that the spirit is, <laughs> that the spirit is unbound and unkept. What, 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 how do these words do you think speak in this particular time of, of distance and, and isolation and disruption? Uh, yeah. Well, didn't Jesus say something about being as wise as serpents and as gentle as doves? Um, I'm, I'm constantly remember, or reminded of, um, I don't know if they still do, but I, oh, I'll, I'll use this analogy. We've all flown on an airplane, or many of us have flown on airplanes, perhaps not recently, hopefully, hopefully not too recently. Um, but they've got that part of the um, safety instructions where they say, you know, if a loss of cabin pressure occurs. The face masks are going to drop down. Make sure that you attach yours first before helping anybody near you who might need help. The reason you do that is because you can't be any help to anybody if you aren't, you know, receiving the oxygen that you need. Um, and I think that much the same is true um, when you're following the spirit of God who stirs things up. I mean, it's not an excuse to protect yourself unduly but there is a little bit of common sense involved. And um, one, one other way that I, I learned to think about this was from Ellen Cherry, uh, my teacher at Princeton, who talked about the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. She said that only works if you actually love yourself a little bit to begin with. 
Uh, so there's that element of self-care. There's a certain amount of self-care that goes into being able to minister to others. And I think that in a situation like this, we certainly need to be um, ready to care for others in whatever responsible way that we can. Uh, but we also need to be responsible or else we're not going to be able to care for others. Um, so that's, that's kind of where I end up. In the Reformed tradition, we've got a bunch of sayings about this. Um, and the one that I like is attributed to Calvin. Uh, the city of Geneva was an afternoon's march from the borders of France. And so the Genevans lived in constant fear of a Catholic army just up and popping over. And um, at one point, there was an army threatening, uh, so the story goes. And um, the response that came back to Gen from Geneva when uh, this Catholic army wrote and said, hey, we're coming, uh, why don't you just give up? Uh, the response that came back from Geneva is that we will trust God and keep good watch. Uh, so not, not trust God and not keep good watch, <laughs> not just trust God, uh, but also trust God. Um, so these things aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. Um, God gave us our wits and um, gave doctors their skill for a reason. And we need to uh, take every account of that that we possibly can. Mm. Thank you for that, Travis. That's, it was just wonderful. I think that really got into some really interesting uh, nooks and crannies with those last words. So uh, if people have liked some of the things that Travis has said and you haven't checked him out before, you can watch our previous interview where we talk about his excellent book, Our God Loves Justice, which is an intro to the German theologian Helmut Goldwitzer. Uh, Travis, any other things, any other ways people can connect with you or any other thing you want to draw people's attention to? I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I have um, a podcast, which is really a wing of my blog where I do things in audio rather than uh, written form that people can check out. Right now, I'm, I'm, into, I'm getting pretty deep into a series on um, Karl Barth's first dogmatic cycle that he did at Göttingen, which I've had a lot of fun doing, especially since um, in December I was able to visit Göttingen. Um, so that's if, if folks are looking for more uh, theological reflection, uh, to uh, to engage with while they're at home uh, throughout this um, this ordeal, then you can find some of it there. Yeah, we'll link to that in the show notes below, as well as uh, the excellent website that that Travis uh, curates and, and writes for. Um, I really love the. I mean, I love been loving the Gerdigan series. I also really appreciated the uh, the podcast series he did on Calvin. Uh, that mm -hmm. really uh, helped me understand uh, a lot more of his work and, and the context for it. So, thank you for that. And thank you, for, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it. Episode 50 is in the books. A very special episode. Uh, sorry we had to break it up over the seven parts. It was just too big to go up the first time. My thanks again to the seven guests who joined me for this. Uh, it was great to talk to you all. I learned so much. Thank you to everyone who has said yes to be a guest and those who are going to be guests in upcoming episodes. Thank you again, everyone who listened. And last one for one last time, let's go out with PhysX. David, thank you for this music, bringing us in and out for 50 episodes and maybe even 50 more. <laughs> <laughs>